Hello everyone and welcome back to series 10 of the Great Woman Artist podcast. It's great to have you back and do we have an exciting series for you. But just before we get to this, I am delighted to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a collection built around supporting women artists from abstract expressionist greats from Lee Krasner to Joan Mitchell to contemporary artists working today. Earlier this year, the Levitt Collection supported the publication of a major book, Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which surveys the vital role of women in the development of the movement, from those working in New York City to San Francisco in the mid-20th century. This beautiful book presents the works of the Levitt Collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Martyr. For more information, I have linked to the book in the episode's show notes, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most pioneering artists alive today, Rachel Whiteread. Working across sculpture and drawing in mediums ranging from concrete to resin and in scales that go from minuscule to colossal, Whiteread is hailed for her poetic, stoic works that draw so intimately on our human experiences. Discussing how her work gives, in her words, authority to forgotten things, White Reed's sculptures of the past three decades have not only made me rethink sculpture as a form and medium, but they have provided incredible commentary on the changes that have occurred. From the rapidly gentrifying London, the state of political change in the 1990s and 2000s Britain, as well as imparting on us a reflection of impermanence and loss. As someone born in the 1990s, I grew up with Whitebreed's work. Her sculptures were some of the first I ever saw and knew of as a kid, and no matter what age I was, one can't help but be utterly stunned and fascinated by them. Famous for casting familiar objects and settings, from houses to the underneath of a chair, baths to doors, Whitebreed takes elements we use in our everyday life, transforms them into ghostly replicas, and ultimately makes us rethink their purpose, practical use, and the memory that these objects once held. Raised in London to an artist mother and geography teacher father who encouraged her to scavenge found objects and look up wherever she went, Whitebreed studied at Brighton Polytechnic and sculpture with the late and great Phila Barlow at the Slade School of Art. Her first solo exhibition in 1988 included her first series of cast objects and in the early 1990s she made headlines with her sculpture House, a monumental to scale concrete cast of the inside of a three-storey townhouse. She has since taken over Tate Modern's Turbine Hall, London's Fourth Plinth, created an extraordinary Holocaust memorial in Vienna that resembles the shells of a library with the pages turned outwards and has had major exhibitions all over the world and is still continuing to push forth all boundaries of sculpture in the most exciting and impactful ways. Rachel Whiteread, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, thank you for that introduction. I, I don't think I need to say anything else. <laughs> 
That was very nice. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Like I said, I grew up with your work. I was a kid when I saw your commission at the Turbine Hall. Thousands of casts of boxes stacked on top of each other to make this city within this vast space. And a teenager when I witnessed your Vienna Holocaust Memorial. And what I still find extraordinary about whenever I am confronted with your work is how immediate they are, how you take these scenarios and objects that we are so used to being inside or holding and turn them outwards, removing the intimacy and making us reevaluate our interactions with daily life and challenging what sculpture can be and do. So I'd love to start by asking you what attracts you to the medium of sculpture? Well, I sort of started out as a painter and I got very frustrated with the edges of a canvas. And I, I'm not sure what that was because I still use a lot of colour, I use a lot of texture, I use a lot of painterly things and sort of drawing elements in my work. But essentially, I found it very, very difficult to make the very first sculpture, which I always consider being closet, which was this sort of space inside a wardrobe. But it was something that I was really desperate to do. But it took me about six years probably to actually make Even though in my degree show at the Slade, I still didn't really feel that I was making sculpture because everything either leant against something or was hooked on the back of something or it always had a sort of prop to hold it up. So I suppose it was when I managed to get rid of that prop and just make things exist on their own that was when I first started to make sculpture as it were which was in 1988 Mm. so a long time now quite well versed in it now (laughs) but it was interesting when you were saying about the turbine hall I mean something like that you know a lot of my work starts from a feeling starts from a an experience and something that sort of profoundly affected me and that was to do with the death of my parents you know my father died when I was 21 and my mother died about 20 years ago now, so early 40s. And, um, well, they both were a very big influence on me, and I was close to them. And when I was putting their house away and with my sisters trying to pack up their lives and, you know, and get rid of a lot of things, one thing that I came across that I found so precious was an old sellotape cardboard box that was no bigger than about 10 inches by 12 inches by 18 inches and it had the old sort of sellotape motif on it in a blue crushed motif in a you know an ordinary cardboard box and then it had electric light bulbs crossed out and then it had Christmas lights written on it. For me it was so evocative of you know our sort of making do and getting by not having a vast amount of money not buying a special box for Christmas you know just being this thing that we got out every year and filled around with the light bulbs and tried to make them work and bought spares from Woolworths and it was like a communal family moment in this disheveled little box and that was really the beginning of making not really an ode to my parents but thinking about them and I was thinking about things like some great movies where they have the extraordinary scenes of boxes of stuff you didn't really know what it was and you know that also comes from the ideas that when I make libraries and things like that where you don't know what the books are It's all about you making an association and thinking about what that might be, whether it's a picture book or something very literary or some kind of encyclopedia. You know, the same with a box, whether it's holding some old jumpers or books or records or whatever they are. So, you know, I think to be able to use things which are 
essentially vehicles for language and thought. That's been something that I've been able to do. And whether I do that with a box or a library or a house or a room, you know, these things are all have that sort of specificity in a way, but it's quite abstract. So you have to use your own imagination. Yeah, because I mean, you know, I must have been about 11 or something when I saw the turbine hall. But also I love the fact that, you know, it just comes from that one small object, but also you can, it can also grow in so many different ways. I mean, to me, it was like this sort of city of Rachel Whiteread, which is also... I mean, I I did, I you know, I had small kids at the time when I made that piece, and I was very specifically thinking about children and about the scale of things and how children see things and how... You can get totally lost in this sort of multitude of units, you know, which as an adult, you make sense of it more. But as a child, it's this kerfuddle of stuff. And it's, you know, that way in which children can be completely sort of engrossed in a pile of pillows or pile of blankets or whatever. You can make up your own mind with this stuff. Yeah, so it was very much thinking about that and thinking about my kids and playing with my kids and how... It's important, that sense of play as well as looking. And, you know, there's a number of artists that have used that kind of idea when working in the Turbine Hall. It sort of lends itself to it as a space that is, um, you know, it's a sort of microcosm of society in there. It's enormous and people go there and they use it as a village, you know. And that's, yeah, that's a kind of great thing to be a part of. Totally. It's kind of boxes with a, a giant box in a way. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, the idiom throughout your career is so strong. You know, you're able to configure sculptures in ways that have just completely expanded their versatility. Why are you attracted to working on such a sort of broad range of scales? I mean, that that's to do with how I sort of am as a person. You know, I love to do things quietly and intimately and sort of poetically on my own in the studio, like writing little poems or words touching or however you want to sort of explain it but I also like to work on a much larger scale where I'm kind of producing my own work so I I have a a number of people that I work with that I work with for years and years and years and they know very very well how I work and how I think and they almost have my touch I mean I, I often need to go in and do the sort of final touches to things but generally they know exactly what it is so we have a very good symbiotic working relationship it's very hard to find that as an artist, you know, unless you're, you know, someone like Damien or, you know, who makes work and it doesn't have his touch as such. So a lot of the, you know, Jeff Koons, people like that. So, you know, for me, it's very much about being heavily involved. But, you know, there was a point where I was making a lot of works and it felt like I was being a producer of my own work. And I stopped doing it because it, it just became kind of frustrating, actually. Fair enough, fair enough. But I mean, you know, this effect of using negative space is so interesting. I mean, we spoke about embankment from 2005, but I mean, how do you hope for people to feel in front of your work that really deals with this element of negative space? You know, I mean, I think the best way I can explain it is when I first made Ghost. I was a very young artist. I'd be making that piece on my own. Occasionally, Marcus, my now husband, but then boyfriend, would come in and give me a hand with something. But I essentially was just shoring myself up in this room by casting these blocks, putting them back against the wall, you know, casting another. And I was doing sort of, if they weren't too complicated, I'd do, say, four a day. If they were really complicated, I might do one or two a day. It took me about four months to make the piece. 
And it wasn't until I got it back into the studio and started to put it up that I realised what I'd done. And I saw, as I, I went in one morning and I had this studio over in Carpenters Road, which is now where all the kind of Olympic stadiums are. And I had the studio and the light was streaming in one morning and and I kind of looked at the light switch and realised that it was reversed. And I just suddenly thought, wow, that's what I've done. I've, I, I'm the wall. That's what I've done. I've made myself the wall. And it was a real sort of extraordinary kind of eureka moment for me. You know, and I think it was something that profoundly affected everything that I've done since. You know, and there were there was another moment when I was in fact a student at Brighton, and I've talked about this a lot. Where I was doing this casting workshop, I, I just got a spoon and I pressed it into sand. So you had this little sort of indented spoon negative, and then I poured in aluminium or lead, and sort of retrieved it and realized that I'd made a spoon but without its spoonness so it didn't have that space for you know what a spoon does is a vehicle for putting something into something else you know or stirring but you know I think most artists their work comes from the most simple things in a way because what artists do is just you know they reinterpret the world and the world it is what it is and what we do is sort of search out the strangeness within that, that's what I've done, is looked for something and tried to unfold it and make it, I suppose, a, a deeper way of looking at it and, a, a, you know, hopefully a more profound way of looking at yourself. Totally. Just when I was sort of writing my notes for this interview and I was just there, you know, writing about ghost and house and I was thinking, oh, I'm actually in the inside of that right now. And and it's just one of those things that it, no matter what time of day it is, no matter what we're doing, or or with the spoon, like you say, it, we sort of don't notice everything that's around us. And I think that's what's so incredible about your work is you get us to notice that. But I mean, I'm so intrigued about it. Is this how it is on this sort of both intimate and sort of very public way? But at the end of the day, the objects that you're using are very much related to sort of our life, humanity, domesticity, as you've said, objects that don't shout about their existence. I mean, why do you like to use that? I remember giving this lecture and the, the student uh, said to me recently that he'd gone to these two lectures of mine. I did a, a lecture after I made Ghost just about Ghost. And one of the things that I said in it was that I realised when I was making it, I had to fill in the keyhole. If I didn't fill in the keyhole, I'd have then had to cast the next room and then the next room and then eventually go out the front door and, you know, <laughs> and I could never stop. Cast the world. <laughs> cast the world, exactly. So everything would be inside out. So that was one thing. And then the other thing, which is in a way sort of similar, I used to go to lots of factories when I was making stuff and try and get the factory to make things in a particular colour or, you know, whatever. I didn't want to add pigments and things. I wanted to use it from the source, as it were. And they said, what colour do you want this to be? And I said, I want this to be the colour of your first pee in the morning when you've been out all night and had a really <laughs> heavy night drinking. And they were looking at me like this really sweet young lady, you know, coming out with this really gross <laughs> kind of... <laughs> But I suppose what I was saying was I wanted my insides out. It was sort of funny kind of way of putting it in a much more visceral way of putting it, but it's a sort of similar kind of thing. That's always what I've done is looked 
upon my own interior as well as thinking about you know what and how we do within the places that we're in and how we interact with books and how we interact with tables or how our knees go under tables and our feet go under chairs you know all of those things are are just a part of our sort of physical relationship with the world yeah Absolutely. But I mean, you were born in 1963, the third of three sisters to a mother who was an artist and a father who was a geography teacher. I mean, I'd love to sort of know where that sense of looking up or looking further came from. I mean, was it always art that was present in your life or was it almost awareness of the world around you? Well, I think both. I mean, my father had this, you know, he was a sort of urban geographer and he ended up being an administrator of an art school. But, you know, he was very interested in sociology. He was very interested in anthropology and history. But he really helped me to look, really opened my eyes to everything that surrounds you and everything that's man-made and how we've made it in order to function in, in the world and on the world and what we've done to it, how we've planted things and what, you know. And he, he was very much a sort of visionary in terms of, ecology and all those sorts of things and my mother too and she did the same thing but she did it with photography and with painting and whenever we went anywhere it would be stop you know and she'd jump out and photograph something peculiar and you know and I do the same thing and I have done for decades I've got billions of photographs you know and Yeah, so they were very, I think, very, very much a part of how I sort of look at the world. They were very instructive. You know, they didn't realise they were doing it. It was just what they were interested in. And But also, I'm I'm aware that your mum, she got involved in new technology. She showed at the ICA. I mean, this idea of kind of what art can do, were you looking also at this kind of grand idea of art history as well, or was it much more of on this level? You know, we talked about hot art history and she used to get very annoyed with me because she said I was arrogant. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, I'm not arrogant. I just know what's good. And, you know, I'm not arrogant, but I'm just really arrogant, <laughs> as young people are. She very much kind of respected art history. But, you know, she had a big thing to deal with, which was sort of art and feminism, which her generation really... You know, she, she, we, we had in our basement during my formative years of 13, 14 year old, we had the selection of this very well known show called Women's Images of Men at the ICA, which was this first kind of rabid feminist show. And, you know, these six women all shouting at each other while Sandy Nairn was in the middle of it all, who this, it was his first ever job, you know, this really good looking young man just being, harangued by these kind of perimenopausal women. <laughs> I don't know how he coped, actually. <laughs> so, you know, these experiences. And I remember, you know, I'd rush home from school when I knew, because they used to come twice a week for probably three months or something to do this selection. And I'd rush home from school in order to kind of make coffee and be able to sort of watch what was going on, because I just thought it was really fascinating, you know. And did it teach you about always kind of thinking about the political with art at all? Or Yeah, I mean, I was always very political. Our household was very political, very socialist and Labour Party. So that was always there. And during that period, you know, it was the culture of marching and it was, you know, Rock Against Racism, CND, all of those things, anti-NF, really grassroots stuff about being able to be in London and be 
anybody and you have the right to be, you know, and we were all kind of screaming and shouting about that, which was great, actually. And, you know, when I went to university, I found it very strange that there were very few artists or art students that were interested in marching and stuff. I, it was bizarre. And when we went, you know, when I went to Brighton, it was when the Thatcher administration was in power. And, you know, they were hated. And then they were blown up. And I was there when they were blown up. And it was a very, very strange and powerful experience. And not something I would have wished upon anybody. But it was very peculiar to be there with this woman that I really did loathe seeing them being dragged out of this sort of dusty, demolished building, you know, really odd. Yeah, so this was in Brighton at the time of the IRA bombing attack on the hotel. I mean, that's such an extraordinary thing to witness. Tell us about this. I mean, what impact did something like this have? What was your memory of it? I I remember thinking, because I lived about half a mile away from the seafront, and I heard this bang. I didn't know that that's what I'd heard, but I heard this bang. It must have been about 6.30 in the morning, 7 o'clock, something like that. So I put the radio on and then it said what had happened. So I got on my bike and cycled down there and there's no one telling me that I couldn't go near it. And I literally was on the seafront just watching it with a few other people. And it was like a black and white film because everything was grey and there was just dust in the air and this this extraordinary scene and you know as I say I loathed her but I didn't wish that upon her or anybody else and it was very distressing to see it but nevertheless I stood and watched you know (laughs) just sort of I suppose partly out of curiosity but also I don't know I don't know somehow it seemed just I mean that sounds terrible but there was something about it that seemed like well you guys have been pretty badly behaved. Not that I think that anyone should be blown up for their behaviour at all. But, you know, there was something about what had happened and then this dreadful sort of public display of of violence and for them to be so vulnerable within that. Yeah, it was very, very strange. And I had lots of friends that were Irish when I was at college and they were constantly being stopped after that. And there was terrible racism you know, if they were going up to London on the train, they were searched and, you know, it was very, very odd. You know, something that no one ever talked about, but there was this this real sort of backlash towards the Irish community after that happened. Do you think that witnessing something like that, also just something that is clearly just such a spectacle in itself and so inhumane in a way, do you think that informed the way you look differently at buildings? Maybe, yeah. I mean, it was definitely a sort of out-of-body experience mm. watching it. But, you know, I've been in other situations since where I was involved in a massive earthquake, drove back through an enormous earthquake that happened in Turkey. And that was really peculiar. And there were kids on this bus that we were on. You know, it's taking us 16 hours to do a sort of two hour journey. And these kids and they were sitting there with their headphones and we got out to get some water or something and these kids were just still had their headphones on and I said that's none of my business but have you guys been in touch with your parents and they said why and I said well you don't know if you realize this but you've just been involved in you know an enormous earthquake have we you know (laughs) totally unaware they were just sitting there with their headphones on wondering why they were going slowly you know (laughs) 
What? When was this? That was early 2000s, I think. Okay, so sort of the day, the days before iPads or iPhones or anything. 90s, yeah, late 90s. There weren't phones and stuff that everyone just had. But yeah, very strange. It's extraordinary what can hold people's memory. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Just... But I mean, you know, back to your sort of education in sculpture, you... From 1985 to 1987, you studied sculpture at the Slade. You were taught by Philo de Barlow, the late and great Philo de Barlow. I mean, I'd love to sort of ask you about what that was like, sort of entering this new realm of sculpture. And did you look at it from a different angle then? That happened really before, actually, when I was at Brighton. There was a lot of interesting people teaching there. The people like Ed Allington and Anthony Gormley was there briefly. Eric Bainbridge, Philo de Allison. Helen Chadwick. I mean, there were a whole bunch of people. And they, oh you know, God, they were really so cool. sort of um, lively and exciting. And Philida at that time had five really young children. I mean, God knows how she did it. And the energy that she <laughs> gave to her students was incredible. You know, we, we struck up a sort of friendship very early on, actually. And Philida was one of my best friends. And having lost her recently is, you know, incredibly sad. And I, you know, really miss her. But I was sort of thinking about this because a lot of people have asked me about, you know, how she taught. And I don't really remember her teaching me. We would just talk about stuff. You know, we'd talk about materials, we'd talk about things, we'd talk about what we'd seen and what we'd read. And, you know, I think we were very much, and I don't want this to sound too arrogant, but we were very much informing each other. I think she was intrigued by the way in which I was kind of looking at things and having come from a painting background and stuff. I mean, Alison was much more, she, Alison sort of taught in a different kind of way and was very, I think, key to the way in which I begun to understand how you had to really figure something out or really deeply think about something. Philida was more sort of slapdash, but in a really intelligent way. But it was much more like, whereas Alison was very, very like honed in on what she thought was the correct way of doing something, you know. Yeah, but they were both great teachers. Yeah. But that's quite nice to have those two different angles coming at it. I mean, I interviewed Philida a few years yeah. ago for this podcast, which was amazing. And she taught me this idea about how we experience sculpture, how we're just sort of walking or if we're outside, integrate it with the surrounding areas. So, for example, like a car or a traffic light or a lorry. and how. But also, I guess your work being also shown in a public space, I wondered if she informed that at all or that idea of how like if you had your house from 1993, how like almost it was beside well, a traffic she was, light. I or, mean, or I a, know that she was sort of profoundly affected by house. I mean, she told me that. and But, you know, I think Philida would readily admit that she got a lot from students as well as gave a lot to students. You know, and she, I remember we were we did this show, it's the last show that she did in, in Paris called Hurley Burley with Philida. Alison and I, and there was this lovely guy, Alex, who worked at Gagosian, but he'd been one of Philida's students. And she, I remember her saying to me, you know, Alex said this fantastic thing. And I remember she'd always say to me, oh, there were these three things that you said that I always thought about or whatever. And she said about Alex, she said he'd said to her, well, you know how pretty police cars are. <laughs> it's such a great phrase. It's exactly that. It's something that's in the landscape, something that you take for granted, that's noisy, that rushes through the streets, that deals with criminals. But it's sort of like this sort of pretty 
childish, almost like a toy. That's how he's sort of looking at it in the world. So, you know, things like that. She was very generous whilst sort of thinking these things through and thinking how they affect us and how we look at the world. Yeah, I think you said this line, which really struck me. I remember a few years ago, you said, you know, you like to sort of give authority to forgotten things. And I think that's really important as well, how it can be so many different things, whether it's just, you know, they're taking for granted the microphone I have in my hand right now or the laptop in front of me or something. I mean, when you sort of came to then make house in 1993, how does sort of that come about? And, and how did you want to sort of give authority to this forgotten house? Well, ha- house came about in this very sort of straightforward way. I'd had James Lingwood from Art Angel came to visit me in the studio. I was a really baby artist. I'd just made Ghost, really. And he said, is there anything you want to do? And I said, yeah, I want to make a house. And he went, right, great, let's do it. You know, literally, it was as simple as that. (laughs) And when I made Ghost, I'd spent probably about a year trying to fundraise the sort of two and a half grand it cost to make it. Then he just came along and said, yeah, we'll do it. Okay, so that's what we did. And how did you want people to feel in front of this work? I think probably in awe of how we live. I mean, that sounds like a very big statement, but I think the sort of um, the place and this, you know, don't you think it's strange how we all exist on the planet and we live in various different types of places, whether it's like in Camden, a lot of people live on the street and they make their own houses or places in a doorway or you know someone that might live in the most grand 27 roomed mansion perched in the countryside somewhere and they only in fact use three of the rooms or a family of 10 that live in a three-bedroomed house you know or you like me a family of four that live in a three-bedroomed house a lot of people don't decide how they do that but a lot of people do, you know, as well. And I always think it's endlessly fascinating how we try to rationalise that, how we try and rationalise our place and our space within a street or within, you know, and everybody tries to nudge their own spot, whether it's a parking place or where they put the bid on the street or, you know, they're all trying to get that extra two inches from the neighbour or, you know, sort of. You know, we're all very, very territorial, as animals are. And I think it had something to do with that. But like, I mean, I mean, house for me, I mean, it was it was made before I was born, but in the sense that it was this myth. It's this incredible thing because it was ephemeral. It was only up for 11 weeks. Yeah, I know. People also think that they saw it and they didn't. It's kind of interesting. They go, oh, God, yeah, that's wonderful. I remember going to see it in Clapham. You're thinking of something else. <laughs> But I think what an incredible element of this work is, uh, so much of your work, is this sort of power of art to create discussion about housing, about community. I mean, art is such a sort of funny thing in a way, because sometimes when you confront it for the first time, you don't sort of realise the impact that it's had. And then actually sometimes only retrospectively, it can create such interesting discussions. Yeah, I mean, I think with the contemporary art, you know, a lot of it is pictures and things that go in people's houses and decoration. and But there are other works of art that are very political and that I don't think necessarily were meant to be that political when they were made. I mean, I always knew that house was going to be political. It couldn't be anything else, which is why I was so specific about what kind of house it had to be and the fact that it wasn't taking a house 
from anybody else that, you know, someone wasn't being made homeless in order for me to cast it or whatever. I don't think it was naive. It was sort of before its time. It did something that a piece of street art sculpture that was out in the street had really done before. It was so confrontational. And because it wasn't in a sculpture park, it was literally on a street and it was a house. And it made it very particular. You know, the other great thing was the site that it was on, which we spent a lot of time getting right. You know, the grass was almost like the plinth for it. So it sort of set it up in a way that the area, Mile End, became a gallery and there was this big thing in it that people either loved or hated. And, you know, it just caused this enormous furore. You know, and if that happened now, it would be tenfold that because it's very different how people look at art now and everything is much more magnified than it was because of different types of media and everything just gets far more attention now than it used to. But, you know, the attention that that got at the time was phenomenal and nothing had ever been like that. And then artists chased that, you know, I want my work to get that much publicity. It's become the norm for something like that to happen when you when you put it in the street or whatever. It seems extraordinary, this sort of public discussion. And actually, I think what's extraordinary about it is the fact that, you know, everyone was joining in, in, in on this discussion. And actually, I think art now can sometimes people don't think it's for them. Of course it is. And actually, I think that kind of thing, to have work that was on the front page of newspapers is so exciting. And I actually don't know how much the sort of mainstream press, because of the arts pages and all of this or whatever, actually, you know, is art at the sort of core of our society. I kind of think that it has changed a lot. And I think that it's far more at the core of our society, actually, than it was. I think people feel that they can understand art more and it's for them more. I mean, you only need to go to the Tate to see how many gazillions of people are there. A lot of people do get a great deal of pleasure out of it. And, you know, the amount of arts programmes that are on, and people like Grayson Perry that push the boundaries of the sort of social aspect of things, Tracy, you know, that have a different take on that. And they want people to, to look and think about a certain aspect of creativity I suppose. I mean let's I, let's talk about sort of recent work as well I mean have you played with different aspects of sculpture and memory within recent years? There's something that I've done very recently that I really enjoy doing and have made a number of them since you know I often make works in series and I was commissioned by my old university in fact to make a piece and I decided to do a cast of the old Slade notice board to do with memory, but also to do with, you know, how we don't look at notice boards in the same way anymore. Everything's electronic. And well, yeah, I say that, but actually people do constantly make notice boards because we all love bits of paper, even though we kind of pretend we don't. And I made these casts using that, which were sort of almost like windows, but with these casts of envelopes and drawing pins. And for me, that was a very nice way of sort of bringing the old and the new together i've made more buildings i've done these pieces called shy sculptures which is something that i'm very much in the process of doing and still doing and whenever i get an opportunity i make a building i've now done one in norway two in california one in new york one in japan there's about eight of them now and i'm trying to make them all over the world in places that are not easy to get to they exist in the mind and if you're lucky enough to make the journey to go and see them. 
they're big journeys. They're not just something that's just off the beaten track. You know, it's really, really off the beaten track. And I like the idea of these big journey sculptures, you know, not necessarily in the way that land art was and that they've maybe disappeared, but these things that will stay for a very, very long time. You know, they're sort of generic buildings, shotgun shacks and Anderson shelters and sheds and boathouses. And how do you draw from daily life today? You know, I think in exactly that way. You know, I'm 60 now and I've been working very seriously for 38 years. And you make this sort of lexicon and thesaurus of ideas and works and language. And you get to a stage where you can play with all of this stuff. And that's really what I do now. I do think of other things and work with other things. But I often enjoy just playing with the stuff that I know making drawings, using silver leaf, making papier-mâché, papier-mâché out of all my own history. I'd never throw anything away. I shred it and then turn it into paper, which I then cast. All of these things, it's very much a kind of the circle of life, I suppose. It's the circle of my sculpture. (laughs) Rachel Whiteread, thank you so much for this fantastic conversation. I have one more question, which is, as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always do ask our guests, if there was a female artist who was living or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? I've been very fortunate in the period that I've worked in. And very early on, I made this piece house, which gave me this sort of pass to meeting lots of interesting artists and especially women artists. So people like Rebecca Horn and Louise Bourgeois and Agnes Martin, you know, they, they were all sort of real heroines of mine and I met all of them. That, that was a kind of wonderful thing. And I've also got a lot of friends that are artists and a lot of older artist friends, which is great because Yeah, they have an authority that I don't have, you know. But then, you know, there's also someone like, you know, Artemis Gentileschi, who you just think, well, wow. And what she must have gone through to do what she did and to try and keep that gravitas that she had and was able to keep that during a time of incredible sort of historic change, but also this really, really sexist society against women painting and or being artists and or doing anything actually you know and there were other women artists working at the time but you know she is obviously completely kind of standout brilliant rachel wright reed thank you so much for coming on the podcast today my absolute pleasure thanks for asking me Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Rachel Whiteread. I am just in awe of all of her words and thoughts on sculpture and, of course, her works in general. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Smanelic, and we'll see you next week for an exciting episode with the historian Marina Warner. Mm-hmm.